This is Talk of the Town on Magic 590 and 100.5. We're also heard in the North Country on 96.9 FM and 1410 AM. I'm Bob Cudmore. Joining us is Chris Churchill of the Albany Times Union. He's their news columnist. The Albany Convention Center was the subject of one of your columns. There was a fight and a stabbing following a concert at the center not too long ago. And you wrote a column this week lamenting that, that lamentable event, and in general saying the $79 million convention center has not lived up to expectations. How so? Well, I just, uh, good morning, first of all. How are you? Um, Good. uh, Well, you know, I, I was a business reporter before I was a columnist, so that meant that I spent a lot of time writing about the convention center and the plans for it. And you'll remember that the, the initial plan was for a uh, much, much grander grander building than right. we ended up with. Right. And um, when this project was being sold, and this is true when people are trying to sell a lot of things that are going to use up a lot of taxpayer money, they, they, they talked it up and made it sound like it was going to be this transformative, game-changing project in downtown Albany. Mm-hmm. What they never said was that there would be concerts there or weddings or all these kind of smaller events, which, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with smaller events, but it's not how it was sold to the public. It was sold as a building that was going to bring in all these conventions and all this economic activity that wasn't happening in the region already. But I own uh, say this, that uh, they were looking at a bigger place. Maybe the bigger place would have done that. Yeah, that's true. And maybe it would have. But actually, if you look at the, what's happening at the smaller place, it leads you to think that the bigger place would have been <laughs> kind of a white elephant that uh, probably would have been. Uh, I think people came to realize that that bigger place was a mistake. Mm-hmm. And I said in the column, I don't necessarily have anything against the convention center. Right. I, uh, you know, it's it's fine for all, capital city to have a nice place for people to gather and meetings. For there's nothing wrong with any of that. My my point was only that you know, as a columnist, sometimes you have to hold people to account for what they sure. said, and they sold it as something that it didn't turn out to be. And they're all, you know, from the Amazon project in Queens to any number of other things that somebody will the casino in Schenectady, right, <laughs> somebody right, will come yeah. along and and try to sell. It's just, you know, take that take that those words with a grain of salt. We'll go to that uh, Amazon project in a moment, but there was a part of your column that was, I thought, sort of interesting inside reporting. You called the, uh, I don't know if it's correct to call him actually a public official, but the person who's the head of the center for comment on the story, and he referred you to a private PR firm, so you never did call them. No, I told him that I wasn't going to call them. I said, I mean, you're a you're paid by taxpayer dollars. I've got you on the phone. I asked him a relatively easy question, which was, you know, what what has the convention center done for Albany and downtown? And he re- referred me to a private PR firm. And I just said, no, you, you, taxpayers pay you. You can answer these questions. And I'm not I'm not going to call them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the big Amazon project downstate that was scrapped after opposition from some politicians and people who lived in that area, uh, which is, uh, I believe, adjacent to or right near New York City. They objected to the billions of dollars in tax breaks for Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Bezos, of course, one of the richest men in the world, and that always gets in the story. Yeah. And uh, But there are other issues as well, like I presume the people in the neighborhood did didn't like the uh, project, but will losing Amazon be bad for New York? Though, well, it depends on who you talk to. Um, 
you know, I just just finished saying how these projects often don't live up to the hype and expectations that they're sold with, and that very well might have been true of the Amazon project as well. You know, from kind of a bigger picture point of view, I I personally don't think giving $3 billion in tax breaks to a company that's rapidly becoming a monopoly is necessarily a, a sound public policy. Now, I heard Andrew Cuomo explaining the tax break. And if I understood what he's saying, he's saying, well, this wasn't really a tax. Well, it was a tax, but it was because he says that, that $3 billion or whatever would come off the top of the taxes they would pay, and the, what they would pay would be over $20 billion. So he said, we'd have been getting that $20 billion. And, and so yeah, on. and there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that, but you're still subsidizing or helping a company that is driving a lot of smaller businesses. I mean, if I'm a, a small New York retailer and I'm paying my full share day in and day out, year after year, and then Amazon comes in and gets a discount, I don't think that's fair. Um, the other side of that is there were five hundred million. It was a five hundred million dollars in cash included oh, really? in that okay. deal too. Well, so that's not you know that's not small change. To, <laughs> it yes, might be to well, Jeff Bezos, but it's not to the rest of us. Yeah. And and also for the the governor, uh, one of the leading opponents of the Amazon project was State Senator Michael Generis of Queens. Yeah, who's the project would have been in his in his, his district. district. Yeah. Now. Our generis, or you hear from the pundits, and I'll ask you as a pundit, uh, you hear that generis and other Senate Democrats are now ready to buck the governor on other issues, even though they're all the same party, they're all Democrats. Yeah, well, it gets a little complicated, but um, the Senate Democrats, generis was a big opponent of the project, and the Senate Democrats ended up putting him on a a board, kind of an obscure board that has o- had oversight over the project and had the authority to kill it. Um, and that's kind of what ended up scuttling the project. So it was mm-hmm. kind of like a, a, a declaration of independence f- from Senate Democrats anyways. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I, the governor may like it this way. You know, it's, it's nice to have a little bit of a foil. And, mm-hmm. um, and this, you know, Senate Democrats may go off in a direction that he's not really happy Going off in so, yeah, yeah. But, you know the, the the part of the thing with the Amazon deal though is like there was no it was designed so that there was no legislative oversight whatsoever, um, and it was you know negotiated in secret and all these it, it, it pointed to a lot of flaws in the way that New York does these sorts of things. I mean, the legislature you're talking about three billion dollars in money. The legislature should have a role in that, in my opinion. Mm. Well, one other thing that came up this week, you haven't written about it, I don't think, or you've written about it, but not this particular aspect. I'm talking about the scary, uh, terrible crash. It was uh, 20 people uh, died, and Governor Cuomo had, I think he was going to ban stretch limos or something, and he put it in his budget. Now they're not going to deal with it in the budget, which has got the governor's stamp on it, I would say. The the members of the legislature will come up with a plan. Yeah, I mean, just philosophically, I I don't really like this idea of putting policy decisions in the budget. I mean, the budget is a spending document. It's, you know, he, there's this habit, it's not just Governor Cuomo, other governors mm-hmm. have done it too, of, of putting all these things that should be de- debated out in public in the legislature uh, into the budget where it becomes much harder to separate them out and really have a, a vigorous debate over the actual policy. 
Now, and again, I'm dwelling a lot on Governor Cuomo, but uh, yeah. Governor Cuomo did make his trip down to Washington to meet with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I think your headline says something like two guys from Queens, you know, yeah, yeah. sitting down to try to solve a problem. And uh, Cuomo's problem, er, he says that uh, Trump, the president, should uh, let New Yorkers deduct more of their hefty state taxes on their federal tax returns. I don't think that President Trump will move on that? What do you think? No, I don't think that's, that's not going to happen. I mean, yeah, go, the governor has been very, very upset about the <clears throat> the federal tax law changes that were passed last year, or 2017, actually. And uh, yeah, one of them is that <clears throat> you can't deduct your full property and, and state income taxes the way you could at one point, which is uh, a direct hit on kind of People in the downstate areas that pay huge, huge amounts in property taxes. Talk of the Town continues on Magic 590, also heard on 100.5, and in the North Country on 96.9 FM and 1410 AM. Joining us is Chris Churchill, Albany Times Union news columnist. You did um, a couple of uh, uh, columns uh, recently that were quite uh, touching. Um, I especially you know, was moved by the column you did on Warren and Joan Chappelle, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, from Rensselaer County. Uh, they have passed away. And uh, I guess to put it in three words, it's the widowhood effect. What is that? Well, it's just, if you read the obituaries closely, you'll see it a lot where uh, one one half of a longtime couple will pass away and then the other half, the spouse, will pass away in relatively short time. Um, and it, it's scientists have, or researchers have studied this and found that there is really something to it, that mortality goes up quite dramatically when one, uh, when a husband or wife dies for the, for the other member of the partnership. And I mean, it makes sense in a way. It's got to be if you're married for decades. I mean, the, the Warren and Joan were married for 70 years. Um, if one dies, that's got to be a tremendous shock and a tremendous, you know, uh, hardship. So it's not, it's not a surprising effect, but, um, you know, the, the column that I wrote was about how Warren had kind of cared for his wife, uh, as she suffered through Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. he, you know, for seven years, he went and fed her every day and really took care of her. And then he got sick. And even though she wasn't, um, no one expected that she, she would die soon. She died quickly after he stopped coming to take care of her because he he had become too ill, and they ended up dying within 24 hours of each other. Even though they w- weren't in proximity, mm. you know, that's kind of kind of an amazing thing. Well, I think probably anybody, especially as you get up in age, as I am, I, I know people that, where this happened. This a good friend of mine lived in my neighborhood. You know his. Um, wife died, and they were both in a nursing home at that time, but in separate parts yeah. of the nursing home. Uh, and in fact, he was in the part with more care, but she passed first. But then, I want to say within a couple of weeks, he had he had died. Yeah, and the thing that was interesting about Warren and Joan's story is it, it wasn't even clear that they were aware that the other person was at the end. Right. It was almost something mystical or spiritual that, you know, it was almost as if they... They somehow knew, even though they couldn't really know, you know. And it, it was, um, it was a touching, a touching mm-hmm. story. And I'm grateful that the family was willing to talk to me, you know, within hours of um, of the passing of both both their parents. Mm. How had you heard about that? It was in the obituaries. Okay, yeah. Sure. I mean, it was right there in the obituaries, and you know, um, people were kind of noticing it around the newsroom. And I, you know, and I just 
figured, hey, want to give them a call, see if they'd, they'd like to talk. Because the, the obituary didn't really explain a whole lot. It just it just showed that they had both sure, passed. Sure. Yeah. You also did a, a, a column, uh, I think you've done one in the past as well, on the Ballston Spa shooting uh, more than three months ago. Stephen Jones killed his wife and daughter mm-hmm. in the family's Ballston Spa home before killing himself you know, using the same uh, gun. And you spoke with the um, wife's parents. Her name was uh, was Jennifer out in New Mexico. I guess what struck me about that, I mean, so many families are like this now. I mean, he, the the people that were involved in the in the tragedy, uh, Stephen Jones and his family, they weren't from here originally. Yeah, and they're you know like her relative. She hasn't doesn't have relatives around here. Her relatives are far, far away. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. I was uh, on the way over here. I was actually listening to a uh, a podcast about kind of American alienation and um, isolation. And I don't want to make any assumptions about the Jones family because I, I don't know them. But you do mm-hmm. find a lot of people who are thousands of miles from relatives. And I mean, that's just... It's kind of always, I guess, been part of the American story, this idea that we kind of go off on our own and make our own way. But um, but there is a cost to that, obviously. You know, when, when a family starts to struggle or have difficulties and they don't have any family around and they may not have that many friends in the area, that, you know, things it, there's no pullback to the center sometimes mm-hmm. with, with uh, families that are going through difficult times. What the parents uh, told you uh, from New Mexico was that people around here had been very kind to them, as you yes. hope. <laughs> yes, they, yeah. they've gotten, um, I mean, she she told me a lot of stories, but most of them were about letters that she had received from people who who knew uh, Jennifer, or Emma, Emma's the, the little girl who was, who was killed. She was 12 years old, I believe. Hmm. Um, but yeah, she'd heard from the local Starbucks where Jennifer went in every day. She heard from the school district where Emma attended school. The police department, she said, has been very kind to her. Um, she hasn't really received any answers. The police department hasn't really, hasn't really said very much about what may have preceded the tragedy. Mm-hmm. But um, she's beginning to accept the idea that, that she probably will never really have mm-hmm. uh, much in the way of concrete information about why this happened. And and this, you know, um, terrible murder was out in the suburbs, if you will. But uh, you have a story from Albany City, a grieving mother speaks out. Kaishe Bailey, a 25-year-old, died on a bench in Washington Park in Albany in 2017 from opioid addiction. And her mother, Damika Bailey, probably more more recently spoke out. And there was also a, a connection for, between Damika and Washington Park. Yeah, D'Amica uh, uh, is an alcoholic. She lives now at the Homeless Action uh, Committee's building uh, in North Albany, which is a building kind of for alcoholics who had previously been um, homeless. Mm-hmm. And for years, she lived in Washington Park. And there was just kind of a, a terrible irony in the fact that her daughter ended up dying in the place where she had lived lived for so long Um and Demika still goes, you know, their daughter died on a bench, and Demika still visits the bench obvi- often, and uh, it's another kind of sad, sad story. Indeed. Well, let's talk about something that's not as sad. <laughs> Please. Okay. Who is William Needhart, and what does Walkable Albany want the city to do? Walkable Albany is a, a little group that is that is formed that wants to make, as its name kind of suggests, wants to make Albany an easier place to walk, and... Uh, 
that may seem kind of simple, but if you walk around the city with with uh, with I think it's Anjo actually. Oh, I'm saying yeah, yeah. the wrong name. If you if you walk yeah. around with the city with him, you'll quickly discover that there are all sorts of impediments to um, oh yeah to walking. As anybody who tries to do it realizes pretty quick. True, and yeah. um, you know I don't want to make too much of this, but as I get old, you know I walk with a cane now. Yeah, and I'm, I'm always so conscious of like the sidewalk or what you know whether it's shoveled. Yeah, but, you know, and, and it's re- it's I don't really see how you can make it completely. Walkable, you know, for pe- even for people like me. The- yeah, you know, one of the things that you know he pointed out was we crossed State Street, and he and I are both you know fast walkers and have no impediments whatsoever. But you know, we were only halfway across the street before the the thing was warning us <laughs> that we were almost out of time. Yeah. You know, if if we'd had a cane or had any other sort of situation or a child or I mean, we we wouldn't right. have made it. And um, you know, he points out, you know dozens and dozens of examples like that all around downtown Albany. So he wants to solve some of these problems. Have the city do it? or um... Yeah. Well, what he really wants is to, I mean, and he's got, it's not just him, there's about 12 other members at this point, and he he feels that the voices, voices of walkers are usually ignored at city meetings and things like that, and he wants the city officials to be aware that there is a constituency out there that wants these that's looking for these sorts of things, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's actually an important thing. It's it sounds a little bit, you know, compared to many of the things we've been talking sure. about, it doesn't sound that serious. But in a way, it is because uh, Albany's walkability is one of its strengths. It's mm-hmm. one of the things that draws families into the city. You know, you can your kids can walk to a park, or you can walk to a park, or walk to a business, and if it becomes Unwalkable, or the traffic seems so threatening that you don't want to walk. Well, you might as well live in colony and pay pay, pay less in taxes. <laughs> you know, like it's from a market marketability and economic point of view, walkability is a is an important thing for Albany to think about. You know what caught me by surprise? You know, doing this program where I interview a lot of political people. Yeah. Was that, I don't know where I was, but they moved up the primary election this year. I was oh, surprised yeah. that some of our regular guests are already running. Yeah, for, because the primaries in June. Yeah, I know it's a little. I was. I'm working on something about the Cohoes mayor's race, which will probably already have been published when this when this airs. And um, yeah, I know it's uh, here. I'm thinking it's you know the dead of winter. And the, this race is just. And then I'm realizing, oh, it's only really only about three months, three or four months away, and and. Uh, what yeah. is the point of that? So that we, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe it's a good idea. I don't really have a. Yeah, I, uh, there, there's a few things. I mean, one of the things is, I think that was frustrating people is that they were having we were having several primaries or at least two mm-hmm. primaries. Right. So you know, you would vote for your local candidate, and then like a month later, you'd be back at the polls voting for a, a federal in a federal primary, and it's is one of those things that was depressing turnout. I think they're trying to consolidate the votes into. So you don't have to go quite so often, you know? Do you think it's to make our presidential primary, which will be next year, count more or something like that? I don't think so because no. uh, we're still pretty pretty far back in the schedule. It's funny. I, <laughs> I was thinking about that with all the New York candidates that are running with Kirsten Gillibrand and maybe Andrew Cuomo and de Blasio and Bloomberg and all these other people. I almost wondered why nobody thought, thought of moving the New York primary up in the process because it's so far back right now that – one of the things, if you look at Kirsten Gillibrand's chances, it's I, it's hard to find a state that she wins early in the process, mm. just because yeah. there aren't a lot of, I mean, the only real northeastern mm. state is New Hampshire, and New Hampshire will probably go to 
Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or one, yeah, one, one of the candidates from the neighboring states. So uh, it, New York is so far back in the pro- – California moved up, as a mm-hmm. matter of fact, which people think will help mm-hmm. uh, Kamala Harris. Well, Chris, uh, Churchill, I thank you for joining us. And I can vouch for the fact you still have a beard. I still do. Yeah. 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 We talked about it's that. It's winter. You, you got you you to keep the beard through winter. Whether or not you can run for president with a beard is still an open question. Yeah. Well, I would, I'll shave it before the campaign starts. Okay. Yeah. You've been listening to Talk of the Town on Magic 590, also on 100.5, and in the North Country, 96.9 FM and 1410 AM. Our guest, Chris Churchill, Albany Times Union News columnist. Read his columns Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays in the TU. This program is online at albanymagic.com and also bobcudmore.com. Next Sunday's guest will be Niska Yunus Supervisor Yasmin Syed. I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>